Hey, uh, Justin. Hey, Andros. Uh, if you're listening to this now, we're in the middle of the major lockdown. Uh, so you're probably listening to this now after, hopefully, the major lockdown. But the maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but the question is, I want to know is uh, how how are you doing? How how's everything over there? You're asking me how am I doing? Yeah, I'm actually doing? You're doing pretty well, pretty well. You know, it's yeah. uh, having a virtual business is not as disruptive. The, the thing that's most disruptive is now uh, my wife is working from home, so she has a city job, but they were able to bring that uh, bring that virtual. So she, she they gave the company gave her or the city mm-hmm. gave her a laptop. She's working from home, and now my uh, almost two year old is also here. But they're in the other room right now as I record this podcast. So nice. good. Well, do you feel do you feel though that you're uh, that you're channeling your your inner beast? Like you're really not like not channeling. always. Really? Not always. I got some of that animalistic energy I gotta release from time to time. So Yeah, man. Well, guess what? I ha- I have I have in my pocket the guy who literally wrote the book on this subject. And we're gonna bring him on right after this, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Andro Sturgeon. And I'm Justin Womack. And we are the Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks. All right, all right. That was, uh, that's, that's cool, man. Uh, tell, tell us about our guests. I want to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. Today we have, uh, we have Brad Blazer joining us on the show today. And Brad went, uh, not only the beastology stuff, but Brad, Brad went from junior broker to millionaire founder of an oil company at the young age of 23. Uh, he lost it all and still went broke. And after uh, discovering some major mindset shifts, he was able to reinvent himself and raise over $2 billion with a B for other companies, including closing record-breaking sales, uh, with one of them totaling $11 million. Today, he's the founder of Beliefology, a program that helps entrepreneurs overcome limiting beliefs that hold them back from greater success in life. And he's also a captivating speaker and the author of the number one rated book for young entrepreneurs, On the Wings of Eagles, Learning to Soar in Life. Please welcome to the show, Brad Blazer. Andros, Justin, great to be here today. Yes, thank you for coming on. Uh, well, first of all, I, I want to just kick it off. What What is this uh, this beast concept? Tell us about um, like how how this fits into your model of coaching. Let's talk, let's talk about this, this whole theme of the, the beast. Sure. You know, I, I'm a firm believer that if people change their beliefs, they can dramatically change their future. Uh, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of many of the people that have enrolled in our coaching program. And it's really just about creating a new set of habits. You know, I tell people, you're the average of the five people you're spending most of your time with. You want to upgrade your life, find a new group of friends, right? But it really just comes about to uh, getting rid of what I call limiting beliefs and self-doubt. There's so much fear. People are fearful of taking the first big step to start a business or to walk into a bigger, brighter future. Everybody wants it. They're just stuck or they just don't know how to get it. And so basically what I do in my coaching program is I kind of instill a little bit of that David Goggins philosophy. Mm-hmm. Suck it up, buttercup. Get off your ass. Let's go do something <laughs> big in life. And it's really uh, how I kind of came up with the name Build Your Beast. I don't know if I could ever match David Goggins' uh, <laughs> level of intensity, but <laughs> that's that's a whole nother level right there. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. I mean, this is this is a this is a you know. In fact, my my uh, I did a TED, TED talk, and it was it was kind of about this about telling your story and how you tell your story affects everything that you do, and and you can affect 
literally affect reality by by that story that you tell. And and there's so many people that get tripped up on this like little thing of like where their story is coming from. Um, can you break down break down start by breaking down your philosophy on on all of this and how you came to this idea? Sure, you know it's really interesting. Um, I was the founder and CEO of an oil company that I started in my 20s. And, you know, and most of my friends were graduating, going out and getting jobs and spending the weekends drinking beers and partying up and having a good time because I lived in Austin, which is a great city. You know, I was running an oil company. And uh, how did you, you run into that by the age of 20? <laughs> well, it's really funny. When I was in school, I was actually studying architecture. My, my ambitions at an early age were to take my architectural training and really use those skills to be a real estate developer. And I responded to an ad that was in the uh, Austin paper. There was a small independent oil company looking for somebody to get on the phone and call out the high net worth accredited investors. And so I responded to that ad, I got hired, and I went to work for about a year, just calling out the high net worth accredited investors, raising money for this guy's oil and gas drilling programs. I uh, got really good at it. You know, I was making some pretty solid money working three hours a day, calling out to the California coast and Arizona, all the places have had a lot of money. And then a year later, I went to work for a second company, basically doing the same thing. Unfortunately, the CEO and the guys running the second company were a little on the shady side, you might say. Shady oil men? I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, so we, uh, so I resigned and uh, organized a little class action suit with my investor base, and we prevailed. But what that did is it really set me up where all those investors, since they had never met me, most of the work I was doing was on the telephone talking to folks. They said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I really don't know. And they said, well, why don't you just do what they were doing, but do it with honesty and integrity? And so essentially, I had all the backing financially of all my investor base. And I just said to myself, you know, I may never have the opportunity to start an oil company. And here's that opportunity. I got the capital. I got all these people that trusted me. And so I went out and I found a geologist and uh, we got a couple of leases. We put together the documentation and things we need. And I'll be honest, I didn't know a damn thing about starting a business. I just thought, you know, you print some letterheads and some business cards and boom, there you go. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that that I learned over uh, the course of a decade. But, uh, you know, we built it up to a pretty sizable company. We got 35 employees and we were raising millions of dollars a month. And I had oil rigs going in Texas and Oklahoma and some stuff in Louisiana. And then in the late uh, 1980s, uh, early 90s, you know, two big things came together, the Tax Reform Act and collapsing oil prices. And I just realized that these were things that were well beyond my control. And so I slowly just uh, collapsed the business. We never had to file for bankruptcy protection because we didn't have any debt on the books. But I went back to school, came out, and then entered the financial services industry because I did something that I recommend most people do. And that was I looked at myself introvertly. And I said, what is my primary skill? What is the one thing that I'm really, really damn good at that people be willing to pay me a lot of money for? And what I came to realize, it was raising capital. And so for 20 years now, I've raised over $2 billion, primarily through my efforts and the efforts of sales teams I've led as a national sales director. But over that time, I've had the pleasure of just working with a lot of big time people I've interacted with, or I've met, or I've heard them as keynotes, you know, Kevin O'Leary. Irving Magic Johnson, George W. Bush, Rudy Rudiger, and Oliver North, uh, Roger Staubach. And being around all these big time people, when I was uh, with them, I was taking good notes. And I realized over the course of a decade that their habits and their beliefs are very different than most everybody else's. 
So before before we dive into that, because I do want to dive into the habits and beliefs of the most successful people on the planet, yeah. um, but I want to I want to go back to you entering that job. Say, so how old were you again? Twenty? Did you say when you first? Well, when I started uh, raising money in the oil business, I was probably around twenty twenty one. Okay, so when you were twenty twenty one years old, and you're calling like probably top one percent level wealth uh, individuals, <laughs> how how like talk about the beliefs that went into that? Like, did you have a formal sales training going into this? Like, how how did that go, and how were you able to have such success at a young age and convince people to you know invest big money into an oil company? Yeah, so uh, I really had no prior sales training. Uh, obviously the people that own the company, you know, taught me what to say, kind of gave me a little bit of a script, if you will. But I was really then, you know, studying other top sales trainers. I mean, I was reading the books and Zig Ziglar was big at the time, you know, Tony Robbins, uh, studying Stephen Covey and, uh, really was just, I guess, kind of self-taught, but always had what I would call a, a closer's mindset. Uh, I, I never was bashful about closing or asking for the sale and, uh, you know, hmm. tell a story actually in the book about one of the investors um, that was, you know, worth millions of dollars. He flew out to meet me on his private jet, but he was really apprehensive. For whatever reason, the guy just kind of was on the fence. And so as I was always training my own salespeople, I said, imagine you climb up the ladder to the high dive at the neighborhood swimming pool and you crawl out to the end of the diving board. You've never jumped before. And you look down. It looks a lot higher than it really is because the water's clear. And so what you're seeing is the bottom of the pool and you're kind of there, you know, and you're like, oh, shit, I can't turn back because it's a long line down the ladder, right? And so you just need a little bit of a nudge. You need to build up that courage. Well, this investor was on the fence. And so one day I was there at the office talking to him. He was out in California. He made the mistake of telling me that he invested alongside Sheldon Adelson in some casinos. And I just said, Dr. Schneck, it takes two things to invest in oil well. You said, what? And I said, it takes big brass balls and lots of money, which is what you don't have. <laughs> now, as a 20-year-old kid, saying that to a guy that's probably worth $100 million, most people would not do that. But like I said, I'm not bashful. And after what seemed like you know eternity, he said, how much are three units in your program again? And I said, go get your checkbook, baby. Let's sign you up. And he became actually one of my best investors. Do you think it helped that you started like targeting the highest net worth individuals that you didn't, maybe you didn't have like the negative effects of targeting low income. You know, it's a different sales conversation when you're going for people that have less money. Well, it's totally, yeah, totally a, a total sales conversation. But what I learned at that age was that big time people do not like to be talked up to. They like to be talked to as if you're somebody that is of equal stature. Yeah. And so when I was in the business, uh, you know, I always saw myself as kind of the next J.R. Ewing, you know, J.R. Ewing's version of mini me. Uh, and I just basically talked to people as if I was worth 10, 20, 30 million bucks. You know, it's like, hey, if you want to invest, great. Some will, some won't. So what? I'll just go down the list, get to the next person that asked me to give them a call back. And when you take that mindset rather than calling them saying, oh, please, please invest. I know that you can write the check. You know, they don't want that. They just want somebody that's a businessman to talk to them just like they would be talked to by any of their friends or any uh, of their colleagues and their associates. And I just developed, I guess, what I call a closer's mindset. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Now, now uh, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the uh, oil industry and its uh, responsibility, let's just say to the environment. Uh, so, so um uh, I, I gotta forewarn you that I'm 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 so left. It's it's I, I you know I pulled out of America. I live I live kind of a hippie. 
kind of, you know. So, so uh, I hope it's okay if I if I just ask you some some probing questions. Sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, the first one being um, uh, uh, Oliver North. <laughs> you mentioned Oliver North, uh, who 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 I I what what is that guy like? Because in my mind, I I think that the guy is a bit treasonous. I'm just saying because I followed like. There's a lot of history around Iran Contra, about especially now with uh, the NRA. Uh, I don't want to get too political, but I'm just curious more kind of like, uh, and, and I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm just more like, I want to know your take on that particular individual. You know, I mean, his whole message really when he was speaking was more about, you know, leadership and how you really kind of inspire and motivate the ranks uh, in, in obviously the military. Um, and, you know, what I found from him really is, your typical guy that you would look to and say, you can tell the students in the military, you know, I mean, everything he does is regimented discipline, you know, there's no quote other way to do it than this way. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, very humble, very open, you know, sat down really wanted to get to know everybody that was there uh, at this event that we were at. Uh, but, you know, he's not a treasonous. I really don't believe that he's just a guy really that obviously was, uh, you know, there in a role to basically kind of oversee uh, our nation's military, um, but really did a wonderful job of kind of inspiring and motivating what I call the troops. Uh, and that's really what he was there to do, mm -hmm. is to basically uh, you know bring inspiration and kind of hope uh, and motivation to the troops, which uh, he, he did a really good job of. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, meeting all of these people, um, each one's uniquely different, but there's a common theme, I think, that underlines their success. And, and that common theme is they're disciplined enough to create habits throughout the day that just most other people don't do. You know, I always hear the excuse, oh, I don't have time for fitness, or I don't have time for health, or I don't have time to work out. Bullshit. You know, if you look at my day planner, the first appointment on my calendar of every day is an appointment to Brad Blazer. It's go to the freaking gym go for a run or do something for your fitness, because if it's not in the day planner, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, man. I, I, I gotta tell you, like, uh, that is something I, it's funny because, uh, when, when I, I started complaining because I was saying the same thing, I don't have time to work out because I got to be on the train at seven o'clock and I got to be up at six. And, uh, and so I just decided, and I was getting out of shape. I could feel it. So I just decided, you know what, there's a CrossFit gym, literally like yeah. uh, like a five minute run from me. And uh, if I just woke up a half hour earlier, that's it. I could still catch that same train. And uh, lo and behold, I started doing CrossFit three, four times a week. And what do you know? I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, you know, it's just like it's just like that one simple thing. However, now that we're in lockdown and the gym is closed. Uh, I, I have to be extra motivated. In fact, just before this, I did I did my workout, but it's it's challenging, man, because uh, keeping a schedule, uh, it's like yeah, I started doing that one little thing, and I'm completely fit. And if you don't do that one little thing, you know, so so how how what would you say to somebody who didn't feel motivated? Because there's a lot of people out there who have trouble just getting up in the morning, cleaning their room. Uh, what, what would be the first step and how does this loop into your build a beast program? Yeah. I mean, I think anything big in life starts with goals. Um, it's really interesting. I actually have a goal planning guide that's 13 pages. That's part of our program. Uh, when I was writing the book, I was doing a lot of research. Harvard university did a study 
uh, many years ago where they took a large group of a couple of hundred people and they asked everybody in that group who in the group has goals. And about 16% actually raised their hand. The other 84% did not even have goals in life. But of that group that did, what they asked next was that only 3% had taken the time to actually put those goals down in writing. And they tracked that group over the course of about three to five years. And at the end, they went back to exactly the same group and they said, okay, how much have you earned? How much have you earned? And what they found is that 3% that had taken the time to write their goals down on a piece of paper out-earned the other 97% combined 10x. Yeah, That means 3% out-earned the other 97% 10x simply by writing their goals down on paper. And the reason that that is such a powerful thing to do is there's a process that takes place when you do that. It's called implantation. You're implanting your ideas onto something that you can look at daily. And the analogy that I always give people, because my background, of course, was in architecture, is imagine I'm an architect and one day I just come up in my mind with a conceptual idea for a building and I make a little sketch in my notepad. Well, I might put that sketch aside and not see it for weeks or months or even years might go by, but when I see it, I'm able to now create a set of blueprints. And then I can give those blueprints to a builder who can now physically construct a building that is real. And that's the great thing about putting your goals in writing is you can sit down and look at them and then say, who are the people I need to bring into my life to put this goal into motion? Or what do I need to do? Or what are the steps I need to take? And once you actually have those goals in writing, you can start taking action on it because let's face it, you know, goals without action are nothing but dreams. And as Mark Cuban would say, there's a huge difference in life between being an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur, as he calls it. And uh, the thing that I love about putting your goals in writing is that it's almost like a bucket list. And so when people enroll in our coaching program, which is called Build Your Beast, one of the first things we do is say, let's pick five to seven goals, big time goals that you want to accomplish over the next you know, three to five years. And I believe that goals have to follow basically an acronym of five letters. They need to be specific, measurable, uh, accountable, realistic, and time-bound. And so we use that acronym SMART, and we just get to work, chomping away, creating the habits, bringing in teams of people that can help my beast accomplish the things that they want to accomplish over that time horizon. And uh, it really just comes down to, you know, what do you want out of life? Do you want to walk into a bigger, brighter future? And we're the team and the guys in our mastermind group that can actually help you do that. The reason most never do is they're scared. They have self-doubt. But it's really something I learned from one of the podcasts I did a couple of months ago. And he said, people really are not fearing failure. They're not really held back because of limiting beliefs or self-doubt. Really, the big challenge most people have is they're fearful of the judgment of other people. I 100% agree with that. I say that again. I fear the judgment of my family and friends and those close to me if I fail. I, I think I think from there's even a, a, another layer to that, and that is that uh, if you succeed, then your role around your friends and family changes. Our relationship to who we are and to everything around us is based in part by our relationship with those other people. And if that relationship changes, then everything changes. And and I think that on some level, humans are also very afraid of change, just in general. Sure. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, now I've got to ask you about, you, you know, because they're, they're, the premise that you're putting forward is, is, is awesome. It's also in some way built upon a system that is going to completely change because 
this this experience that we're going through globally is is uh, bigger than anything that we. I think it's in some ways it's bigger than World War II. Yeah. And so it's going to be this this marker in in history where it's like before this and after this. How do you predict? your like the 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 people are going to react and how your business may change based on what's happening right now with the COVID-19? It's it's a great question. You know, luckily, uh, very similar to, you know, your role as podcasters, Justin and Andros, is my business for the most part is uh, digital. It's online. Uh, I have coaching clients in multiple countries around the world. And, you know, in the initial call where they asked me about coaching and, hey, I've been following you. I'd like you to be my coach, Brad. But, you know, how are you going to coach me? You're in Texas and I'm over here in Australia or wherever the hell they are. I say, it's just like we're doing now, buddy, Zoom. That's the beautiful thing about technology is that, you know, here's how my coaching program is structured every Monday. I have an accountability call where we might have 50 or 60 people call in from different places in the world and I'm coaching on a concept, an idea. And, uh, you know, twice a week I do my rhythms on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings and then Every, every month, twice, we're going to just be talking one-on-one, just a strategy call. What's working? What are you stuck on? So that's the overall structure, but it's all done virtually uh, via Zoom. And then, of course, I also have my own podcast, uh, which is Beast Nation. So my business really has not been affected. I mean, it's probably uh, increased, if, if anything else, because people are looking for solutions. They're looking for new ways. They're looking for uh, creative ideas on what the hell they can do. Uh, in the event their business is closed. I mean, I've got people that are are owning shops, restaurants, where their businesses essentially are shut down. And, uh, you know, one of the guys that I work with owns a winery, and uh, what he's doing is brilliant. He's doing virtual wine tastings. You go to his website, you sign up for the virtual wine tasting, boom, you get three bottles shipped right out to you, FedEx, and then you sign on, and they've got the sommelier, and they've got the expert talking about the wines that you're going to be sampling at home. And so he's charging people 99 bucks. And I said, Marco, that's such a brilliant idea, man. He said, yeah, because you know, we can't come into the winery, but hell, we can still ship the wine. And so it's just really adapting. Uh, one of my clients actually owns a platform called Friendly Sky. She was the one that was marketing the tickets for the Major League Baseball, uh, the NBA. She was also under contract to do the uh, Tokyo Olympics. Her entire business has been shut down. And so what she's doing now is she's using her platform with musicians and entertainers doing virtual streaming, selling concert tickets online. She's working with people like Citizen Cope. I'm hooking her up this week with Billy Dorsey, the two-time Grammy Award winner, uh, who I just talked to earlier today that's going to be on my Conquer the Crisis Summit on the 11th. And so it's really just understanding that, you know, money follows motion, right? You can't be sitting at home feeling like, damn, chicken little, the sky's falling, expecting coronavirus to go away. You can't be contracting. What I have found with the people I've worked with is big time people actually expand and increase their intensity in situations like this. They don't crawl under a rock. They don't sit home and sulk. They don't say, oh, I can't wait for coronavirus to get over so life returns to normalcy. Life ain't going to be back to normal, folks, for the next three to six months, you know? Uh, and even when they say, okay, it's okay to come back out, people ain't going to go out. They're going to become germ foes. I mean, I was listening this morning that last month, on any average month, the amount of people that typically travel uh, here in the United States by air is around two and a half to three million people. I hear the term wartime general a lot from CEOs that are in the times of crisis like this. And I want to I want to ask a little bit about this. One of the things that you're describing, though, is the ability to be flexible in the face of chaos, the face of disruption. 
And do you find that like flexibility and adaptability then to be one of those core components of successful leaders as well? Um, the people that you're uh, you're modeling after, like how how does that tie in the ability to get creative and make those pivots, like you described in the um, in that previous segment there? Yeah, I mean, I think that you certainly have to, you know, you you have to step back and say, what are the things that are not changeable, and that is, of course, working from home, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera, and then asking what are the things that I can change that I can take control of. And it's really just kind of understanding that is that, you know, coronavirus uh, is inevitable. Defeat is optional. The thoughts that you allow to enter your mind are really what are ultimately going to control your destiny and how you're going to come out of this. There are going to be so many people that are restaurant owners or business owners that have closed that unfortunately are probably going to go out of business uh, because they're not thinking creatively. They're allowing negative thoughts to enter their mind. Really, what you want to be doing is controlling your thoughts and saying, what can I be doing in this environment to maintain relevancy with my customer base? You know, if you have an email list or you have something that you can do where you can provide some podcasting or some emails or uh, offering stuff online, that's what you need to be doing. Because I think really most of us realized that we were moving in the direction of a digital economy. I mean, everyone's got cell phones. We've all got iPads. I mean, hell, I go to the damn restaurant. I'll see the dad sitting there on his phone while the kid's on the other side of the table looking at a video on his iPad. There's no interaction between a father and the son other than when the waiter comes over to take the order. And that's sad, but it's just reality. And I think what this is doing is it's really like pouring gasoline on the fire and it's pushing the world into a digital future a lot faster than a lot of us wanted to go because it's the only way we can interact today, right? Yeah. And, you know, this is you bring up a really interesting point, because because one of the things that I was thinking about is uh, like movie theaters. Like after this, who who the hell is going to want to sit in a a room crammed with other people after this experience, especially when everybody's been streaming and really watching, you know, shows. And and a lot of these series are far better than the movies that are being released anyway. Uh, My prediction is that uh, Disney or Netflix is going to buy a theater chain. And then they're going to say, hey, well, it's going to go for a little bit more for like three, four more dollars a month. You can go to the theater and see our movies and some of the big movies. But, uh, yeah, I mean, movie theaters are going to are going to change uh, the way that people do business is going to change. People are going to be really rethinking about going into an office at this point. Like, why do I why do I need to go to an office? I got my work done at home. It was fine. Totally. Agree. You know? I mean, as long as the employer has some accountability follow-up to make sure that, you know, people aren't at home watching Oprah Winfrey and screwing around and, you know, not not being productive like they would in an office. But if people become disciplined and they can actually do their work and there are checks and balances that the employer has to make sure that, you know, you're still putting in the same effort, uh, I think a lot of people are going to come up with that excuse of that argument. I mean, I'm buying Netflix stock like there ain't no tomorrow, but I'll tell you, you brought up a good point, Andros, and that is the movie theaters. I believe we're going to see a huge surge in something that we saw huge back in the 70s and 80s, and that was the advent of the drive-in movie. You know, people go to drive-in theaters, and at night, you know, you got the big screen, uh, you know, and you just pull in your car, and, you know, you tune into a certain station, or they got the thing that you hang on your window. I see drive-in movie theaters coming back big time. I could see that as the business of the next decade, because if you're not going to go to the, quote, the movie theater, which is under roof and sit, like you said, in a room with people, I have no problem driving my car and and still watching a movie. And 
you know, maybe having my popcorn delivered or, you know, keeping my social distancing, walking to a window at the back of the lot and, you know, getting my burgers or whatever. But it's definitely going to change. And I agree, offices are going to become virtual. People are going to become experts at technology and webinars and, and Zoom and how to share files and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, like any situation like the one we're currently going through is millions will be made by those entrepreneurs and those people that can embrace this and build a business around it. I mean, look at people that are in the damn sanitation business. Their business is exploding, right? If you have access to, you know, masks or rubber gloves or the stuff that you spray to disinfect, you're making millions hand over fist right now. Well, it depends on how you do it. I mean, one of the, uh, I think uh, 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 Mark Cuban said something really wise. He said that a lot of companies, their future business will depend on how they're doing business right now. If people are, uh, you know, raising the price of stuff and trying to scam people and make money uh, during this time, I mean, there, there are some things that are blowing my mind that, that both good and bad, like, like uh, you know, for instance, uh, the State Department said, well, uh, Cuba has offered their doctors to various countries and we're, we we advise against that. It's like, this ain't the time, man. I mean, like people, if you're willing, if you're a, a healthcare provider, and you're willing to help out. We need to come together at this point. This is not a time to um, politicize that sort of thing. And I see a lot of uh, politics on, on both sides, uh, you know, right now, which is disgusting. Uh, so. So where do you think that this is going to lead us? What kind of society are we going to have, especially since things are so polarized? There doesn't seem to be a way around this. What do you, you know, and, and furthermore, uh, you know, this this argument against universal health care and uh, even universal basic income and, and eroding the safe, social safety net. There's going to be so many more deaths in America because these things don't exist. Uh, what, what, where are we going with all of this? Where do you think it's going to end up? You know, it's interesting um, as we maintain our social distancing and as business is conducted more digitally like this, I believe that one of the biggest jobs that will be in demand in a decade, one of the biggest jobs in a decade will not be in engineering. Uh, it will not be, uh, you know, being a surgeon. I see that probably one of the biggest jobs in a decade will be teaching people how to have normal relationships teaching people just to walk up and shake someone's hand and, and, and take interest and strike up a conversation. Because when you think about it, you know, we all that are in the sales industry realize that sales is a relationship driven business. People like to know the people they're ultimately doing business with. And even though we're talking here digitally on zoom and we can see each other or on a different platform at the end of the day to exist as humans, you need relationships. I mean, if you read studies that have been done with babies that are put in isolation that don't have a relationship or are not nurtured or hugged or loved on, you know, they die. They, they basically just never flourish. And we as, we as humans, we as a society have to flourish on relationships. I mean, I was talking to my neighbor a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, you remember back in the 80s, man, you pretty much knew everybody on the street. You'd sit on your front patio. People were walking their dogs. They'd come by. They'd shoot the shit with you for 30, 40 minutes. Hell, I don't know the neighbor three doors down or anybody beyond that now. Why? Because we're all working. We really don't care. We're, you know, what's interesting is there was a study done that said the reason that Starbucks has become so hugely successful is Starbucks essentially has replaced what the front patio used to be, Right. 
you go to your Starbucks, if you're in a big city, you see the same people all the time, you see the same folks are coming in every morning. It essentially is your front patio in today's society. Well, what's happening really, I think, is we're becoming desensitized to individuals. And I don't ever want to see the world get to a point where we, quote, don't give a shit about our fellow human being. But if we continue along this path, it's going to be a really, really scary future in another five to seven years as we become polarized. You know, it's really interesting. One of the people that I know here in Houston that was on my crisis summit this past weekend is Dr. Stephen Hotze, H-O-T-Z-E. You can look him up. He's very controversial. He's written a couple books. One of them's called the do a 180, but his philosophy is most physicians prescribe medication and write prescriptions to alleviate the symptoms. What he says is let's work on the symptoms and eliminate them so I don't have to prescribe you medication. Isn't that a much better outcome? And so he's one of the most famous wellness physicians in the world. He's got people from all over the planet that come into the Hotsi Wellness Clinic. And what he and my sister, who is also a doctor, say is that this mass quarantine really is not the best thing. And the reason for that is because we as people build up an immunity by actually being exposed to something. That's how your antibiot your uh, your antibodies work, right? You have to be exposed to the virus to build the antibodies within your system. So he said the problem is that if you're at home and you're not exposed to this, you're not building up any immunity. And so they believe that what we'll actually see in the fall is another major outbreak once again. Yeah. Because yeah. no vaccine, we're going to start coming out into the public again when they tell us, okay, quarantine's over, and then boom, there's going to be another wave of people getting affected because we're all self-isolating. Really, what we should be doing is letting those that are at high risk isolate and quarantine, but allow people that traditionally have you know very healthy immune systems get out there, like you know Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. They were exposed. They've now built yeah. immunity. That reduces. Yeah, and, and, and but the, the the problem right now, obviously, is that the, the the healthcare system, especially in America, is is too overwhelmed. Absolutely. So we can't. I mean, I have no problem. I mean, yes, eventually we all have to have coronavirus. In fact, uh, I am almost positive that I had it in November uh, because uh, I had yeah, like I had it way early. A colleague of mine went to China and came back, and uh, like uh, at the beginning of November. I got so sick and I had a rattly lung for about three, four months. Never been that sick. Uh, I'm almost positive I had it, uh, but uh, which is which is ironic because uh, here in the Netherlands, uh, my son also had it. And it, there was a huge outbreak where he lives in the south of the country with his mother. And uh, I'm I could I'm almost sure that I might have been the cause of like patient zero. But uh, <laughs> but, but the. the uh, 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 you know, so so this yes, I mean we we definitely uh, it, on one level it it is it is harmful. The the mental problems that people are going to suffer from this, especially healthcare workers, is going to be super intense. However, I think that there's a, a some good that's coming out of this. Number one, people are suddenly spending more time with their families and and having to reevaluate their relationships. That father uh, who's like looking at the tablet while his son's looking at uh, a movie. He's got to like suddenly be with his son and figure out like what what is this relationship really about? Yeah. Uh, you know, divorces are way up, and on the one level, it's like people are reevaluating how their marriages are looking like, uh, and also just suddenly realizing like, hey, I got to reach out to my aunt more. I got to like 
so I think that there's there's a lot of good that will come out of this, including looking at things like how how we look after our fellow citizens and is it our responsibility uh, to do that? One of the things I love about living in the Netherlands is that I pay enormous taxes. I pay like 40, uh, 45% in taxes. However, uh, my, my health insurance is only $175 for me and my son. Uh, the healthcare is great. Uh, the roads are great. The schools are great. So this is all things that we need to reevaluate, right? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, you know, I think that what it will do is it will make uh, so many people stronger because I think people will have to look at themselves introvertly in order to work through this. And, you know, I tell people in my coaching program, you know, the reason we call it build your beast is that being successful or seeing a bigger future ain't easy. You know, you've got to kind of step into that, but you've really got to look at yourself and really say, I'm not going to be defeated. I'm not going to let this beat me down. Uh, You know, I can deal with this. And uh, it's really just um, instilling the habits of continuing to move forward. Uh, and just say, you know, I've got, to, I've got to do the things that I have customarily done. I just got to do them differently. Instead of meeting people for coffee and having lunch meetings, it's being done over the phone. Um, business doesn't have to, quote, shut down. But it's really the, the social distancing of, you know, how do you bring families together? I mean, God forbid you have somebody in the family that is diagnosed from what I'm told is they can't have visitors at the hospital. I mean, you know, it's that bad here in the United States, especially in the big cities, that if you have a child, and they're being treated, and you're the mother or the father, you cannot go and sit by their bedside. Well, that's got to be pretty hard when your kid is, you know, six, eight years old, and they're crying and screaming for mama, and the doctors are saying, no, you know, you can't even come into the same room as your son and or daughter because of the risk involved. And it's just really, I think, changing people. But the real heroes, I think, in all of this are people in our medical community, you know, they're risking their lives daily on the front lines. It's almost like going to battle because they realize the risk for them also of catching coronavirus. But, you know, they're in there treating these patients, putting them on the ventilators, doing the things that they need to be doing. They're the real heroes. And I think that, you know, in a couple of years, much like whenever I see somebody that's in the military, I thank them for their service. I think in a couple of years, you find out someone is a healthcare worker, you're going to be, man, thank you so much for coronavirus. <laughs> I, I want to talk about this because um, I, as somebody that survived ARDS, like I had acute respiratory distress syndrome uh, for a very different reason. Uh, but I was, uh, I was in the ICU for two months. Wow. And I, I could tell you that had I not had visitors when I was in the ICU for two months, yeah. I would have, I don't know that I would have even made it out of that. Yeah. Like I can't imagine what that would have been like. It was already bad enough that I was in a hospital bed. I had a trach. I couldn't speak. Mm. I um very wow. lonely. Like it, to it adds so it would add so much more stress mm. to that position. Right. And ARDS already by itself has like around an 80% mortality rate. And what coronavirus tends to the people that die from it tend to develop ARDS is what leads to their deaths. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, with that kind of a high mortality rate already. I, I can't imagine that not having the support there. I mean, I, I just think that'll just add to it so much more. Mm. One of the other things I wanted to tie this to, though, was this idea of relationships and social skills. What what about like how you see the most successful people in the world in terms of relationships with their clients? Mm. Like, mm. Um, yeah. what how how are they treating their clients during this? Are they reaching out? Like, what do you see as the markers of success yeah. for for these business owners, like with their clients? Uh, great question. Um, Definitely reaching out. You know, one of the things that we do in our business coaching 
is we work around five things because I look at businesses having owned a multi-million dollar company. There are what I call systems and structures that apply for any business. Doesn't matter whether you're an accountant, an attorney, a doctor, uh, whether you're running an automobile dealership or you're running a huge lawn care company. They're the same for everything. And that is you've got to have a selling system. You've got to have structure in a selling system so that you're not just randomly going out talking to people. And so here in our coaching program, we have what we call a hit list which is basically a whole group of people that have expressed interest in our goods and services. We have another list, which is our top 25. These are our top 25 existing customers, and you know we're loving on them daily. We're calling them monthly because they provide referrals to us, to other people. And then we have another group of lit people as well. Then you have to have a follow-up system, uh, provide million-dollar follow-up. What we have found in our studies and talking to business owners is it traditionally takes seven to 15 touches to take somebody on the journey from being a prospect to a customer. The sad thing is most salespeople give up after the third or fifth attempt. They never go the distance because they assume the person's just not interested. Probably less. Yeah, but, but what we do is we, we teach people how to create what we call linear and nonlinear touches. And so there's a difference between each type of touch. A linear touch is a phone call or a meeting. A nonlinear touch is a blog or a podcast that you're driving them to because you want to continue to stay relevant. And then, of course, the third is getting referrals and knowing how to extract referrals from your existing relationships. Most businesses suck on that, and that's the low-hanging fruit. And then the fourth thing we work on is how to craft what we call your explanation of service. It's basically about a two-minute elevator pitch that uses the law of attraction to attract business to you so that people are calling you wanting to do business rather than you having to call them. It's much, much easier when you're on the receiving end of business using that philosophy and then a big thing I do is I teach people how to become a person of interest and really elevate their status within their industry. So they are the go-to person. They are the go-to experts using your social media, your Instagram, getting out there, getting press releases, et cetera, et cetera. Most businesses do a little bit of that, but they don't do all of it really, really well. And so we come in and I tell people, if you just change this little thing that you're doing a little differently, you could see tremendous scale and success in your business. I'm not asking you to rewrite the entire manual. It's just that what I call a business owner is, uh, you know, they're spinning too many plates or they're so closely tied to the business that they don't see small things they could change. One of the beliefs I lead with is I believe it's better to be on the outside of the picture frame looking in than it is to be on the inside of the picture frame looking out because most people that are inside don't see solutions to their own problems. It takes somebody on the outside looking in to say, you know, if you try this a little bit differently, or if you did this a little bit differently, you'd see massive success for these reasons. You know, one of the big things is if you have a sales team, let's say of six to eight people, and you can find each one of those persons in a, an extra hour in the day where they can make one or two more sales a week, and then you multiply that out over 50 weeks, how many more sales is that a year and what's the average size of your sale? We've just uncovered another three to $500 million in revenue by just finding an extra hour in the day for your sales team. Well, I'm a big believer in this idea of flipping the script. Yes. And like you say, like I've heard like push pull being the other yep. term terminology used, but the idea that becoming a leader in your industry, like through like a podcast like this, or what I think is the most effective is public speaking. Because yep. even if even if you don't know what you're talking about and you're on stage, people see you in a different light. It's funny how that how that kind of works, but that's just the reality of how we're psychologically wired. Um, I'll, I'll take it an even a step further, Andros and Justin, is um, I tell everybody that you really want to change your life, write a book. I, I agree. Writing yeah. the book 
is what started my entire career. If you had told me three years ago, two years ago, that I'd be a keynote speaker getting on stages, being paid, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15, 20 grand and working alongside big time thought leaders like Matthew Knowles, whose daughter, of course, is Beyonce. She's worth a billion, married to Jay-Z. Or I was on the phone earlier today with two-time Grammy Award winner, Billy Dorsey. I would have laughed in your face. But what happened is I wrote a book on the wings of eagles, learning to soar in life, which is really a compilation of the stories from all of these big thought leaders and some stories from my background as the CEO of my oil company. And a friend of mine went to buy the book and he forgot the name. So what did he do? He Googled me and then he put plus book. And rather than the book popping up, a blog over in the United Kingdom called Booth, B-O-O-V-E popped up where my book was listed as the number one book for young entrepreneurs. Somebody there apparently bought the book on Amazon. They were assembling a list of the top 10 books for entrepreneurs, and mine was number one on the list. So he calls me and says, dude, your book's number one. And I'm like, where, on Amazon? You know, New York Times bestseller list. He's like, no, it's like the number one book for entrepreneurs. And so he sent me the link to that blog. Well, what do you think a smart Jewish kid from Brooklyn does? He calls every university that has an entrepreneurial program in the United States and I direct them to that. And then I send the dean of the school a copy of my book with a nice little handwritten note. And now I'm getting calls from universities to come in and talk to the students. And then radio stations started hearing about that. I started getting calls from radio stations. Hey, we heard about your book. Your young entrepreneur, dude, you know, like to come interview you. And then that turned into TV interviews. And this whole thing just started snowballing where once it was set in motion, I was like, man, this is my bigger, brighter future. This is my calling. I'm now coaching. I'm now speaking. I've got a second book that was in the works. That book came out just a few weeks ago called Put Some Thrive in Your Hive. It's really a book designed for leaders and managers and corporations how to inspire and lead with praise and recognition. And so really for me, this whole new career was launched where for 20 years I've been in the financial services industry, right? Yeah. And I tell people, if you want to change your life, find out what you're good at and write a book. The power of momentum right there. Um, and the other, the other thing though, is in relation to this idea of flipping the script, but uh, yeah, I'm hundred percent agree with you that writing a book, it just changes everything. But let me, yeah, well, let me, finish let me ask you this. What if what you're good at is, is it, oh, I was going to say, what if what you're good at is smoking weed and playing video games? Write a book, man. You know, it's funny. You, you say that, but I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you look at people that are looked up to and are respected. I mean, if your big thing in life is you want to play guitar and have sand between the toes and, and be a pothead, do it. Because we all know there's plenty of people out there that are doing it big time that are famous. You look at Carlos Santana, you know, you look at Lenny Kravitz. I mean, all these guys are living the rock star lifestyle. And what are they doing? They're doing exactly that, Anders. I guarantee some of the guys you just mentioned, you know, they're they're smoking weed, right? They're 420 friendly. Yeah. <laughs> they're having the time of their life, you know. They're out. <laughs> the other uh, element, I, I want to finish my question. The other element on flipping the script I wanted to address here, though, was I've worked in a lot of seminar companies, and the idea of making people apply to be a part of a high-end program is another element that I see that works really, really well about, like, flipping the way the dynamic of the relationship between a customer and a business. Do you, do you see that as one of the core strategies? Because I've worked for people that have sold $100,000 programs from the stage. And that's one of the things that I think is one of the big levers that like shifts people's perceptions and like almost distorts reality in some sense when you have somebody apply to be a part of something. And um, it just, the dynamic changes in sales conversations take an entirely different field. The same way that when somebody reaches out to me versus me calling out to them, um, I have more leverage and it's like the conversation feels easier. I see that also with like the, when you make somebody apply to a program versus um, 
versus them just coming to a sales conversation. And I see that work really well in the seminar industry where you have like a captive audience like that. I'm just curious if you had an experience with that. It, it certainly changes the dynamic. I mean, let's face it, you know, there are people out there um, like Joe Polish, you know, the human gathering oh, yeah. genius network that run these elite mastermind groups where, you know, you're looking at twenty, fifty thousand $50,000 just to come to their meetings. Uh, and it's kind of as they lend you to believe, you know, an application process where, you know, there might be an interview or whatever, you've got to be referred from somebody already in the program, you know, whether there's really quote an application process or not, or they're just leading you to believe there is one uh, is, is really here and or there. But I think it's the, the aura that's created is that you're, you're being admitted to quote an elitist group of success minded people where we're all inspired and we're all here to help and lead each other. Uh, and then, of course, there are other coaching programs out there pretty much that, you know, they'll take almost anybody, right? You know, as long as you can pay for the coaching program, we can enroll you. I don't know that one is better than the other. I think at the end of the day, what I find is there's a lot of people out there hanging shingles on the door, calling themselves coaches that should never be coaching people. Money <laughs> and they fail to deliver shit, you know, and it's like I get people that are they meet me and they're like, well, you know, how do I know you're not going to be like the next guy? Well, you know, I've done it for all these other people. And if you want references and you want recommendations of all the people we've coached and helped, here's a long list. But I tell people, if you're not willing to implement what we're coaching on, it ain't going to work. I'm not moving in as your roommate. I'm not going to be your bedmate. You know, if you don't have the desire to implement the strategies that we discuss, it ain't going to work. So don't enroll. You, you've got to have the desire to improve your life and get to a better place, whether it's financially, emotionally, in your relationships, whatever it is we're doing to people. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I learned this from my coach, Coach Michael Burt, is he was a disciple of Stephen Covey. And it was the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People that really changed his life, where Covey said that we as humans really are made up of four things. You've got a mind, you've got a body, you've got a spirit, and you've got a soul. And each one of these things represents something very different in our psyche. And of course, Coach Michael Byrd was a women's basketball coach that took his teams to ultimately win the national championships. And what he realized when he was coaching is he was coaching these little girls on those four things. And the analogy he gives is he said, imagine that you're someone like Phil Jackson, right? The Lakers. And you've got this great athlete that is able to, you know, jump shot and he can dribble around everybody, but he has no physical desire to be on the bench. He doesn't want to be a teammate. He, he's great in body, but he ain't there in desire. And so as a coach, you've got to work on that element of his core so that he now wants to see himself as a member of the team. Otherwise, he's not going to be good for the team. He's great as an athlete, but he sucks because he lacks desire. And so what's really interesting is when I was in business with my oil company, I had a kid that came for an interview. He showed up in a pair of jeans that had holes in the knees. He had a flannel shirt. He had work boots that were covered in dust, uh, a mullet haircut, and a Fu Manchu mustache. And here I am in a prestigious office building. Everybody's walking around in business attire. But, you know, I took him into the conference room. We sat down for 30 minutes. And when I asked him, ultimately, Jack, why do you want to come work for me here? His answer is what got him the job. He said, it's because my wife and my daughter deserve and want so much more in life. And in my current situation, I can't give it to them. And I said to myself, because I was reading the same books that Covey was writing, this kid has desire. It's the desire that will allow him to be successful because I can teach the sales process. And so I said, if you can come back to work next week, man, you get yourself a job. And I guarantee, man, he lit up. He hustled out the office. Now, the problem started when he came back to work. 
Because here's a guy now that has to get on a phone and call big time people that are writing checks for fifty, hundred thousand dollars. And when he showed up for work, he showed up in jeans with holes in the knees and a flannel shirt, Fu Manchu mustache and work boots. And I said, Oh my God, Blazer, what did you do to this poor kid's life? You know, this guy doesn't see himself as a big time person. But I took him in my sports car that day to a department store and I treated him to two suits. Head to toe, wardrobe, suited him up. Then I took him to the barber and I said, give this guy the, the, the uh, Hollywood makeover. And I could tell the very next day when he walked through the door, the transformation had already started in his life. He was walking taller, saw himself as a very, very distant person. And then when I started doing the scripting and the sales and the closing, he, he learned the business very quickly. That year, he made over $225,000 with me. And the funny wow. thing is, when I sat down with him roughly four to five months into this process, when he was on the phone with a prospect, when he put the phone down, I kind of smiled. I said, man, look at you, J.R.U. And he said, yes, sir. He said, you told me this first week that whatever my mind could conceive and believe it would achieve. And every time I sit behind this desk, Mr. Blazer, that's exactly what it is I'm thinking, that I am J.R.U. And so it's part of the coaching process and really that philosophy that you know, you have to see yourself in a bigger, better place. Uh, Rock Thomas, who is a coach living in Canada, grew up as a farm boy, but had great mentors that instilled a big worth ethic in him. And he said the two most important words in the English language are actually two of the smallest words. F you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's a big believer in positive affirmations, and I am as well. But he said the two biggest words in the human language are the words I am. Because what you add to those two words will describe you, and then they follow you out the door every single day. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, if you're a believer of positive affirmations, choose something powerful, right? Choose I am a beast or I am whatever, but don't, you know, don't look at yourself and say I'm a big, ugly, fat bastard. You know, he saw himself as J.R. Ewing, and this kid walked into a bigger, better future, making close to a quarter million dollars. And this was back in the mid-80s when that was a ton of money. It still is today, but it was even more money back then. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I totally believe this. One of the, one of the, uh, my favorite things that uh, Tony Robbins ever said, he did this video about the difference between an affirmation and an incantation. And an affirmation is where you stare at yourself and you go, uh, you know, I, I am great. I, I believe in myself. I believe in myself. I believe in myself. And you're supposed to smile until the smile becomes natural. Uh, but but that, that doesn't work. What works, and this is what he says, he says, before I do any on stage anything, I, I have an incantation where I say, I am going to go out there and I am going to change people's worlds. And this is what I am going to do. Yeah. And, and he puts it in the affirmative. And, and it's so true. I mean, I, I, uh, I one day, uh, Justin and I you decided, like, we are going to be podcast hosts. And one day we'll believe it. <laughs> we I think it was uh, I think it was the book Psycho Cybernetics, where they actually talk about Tony Robbins, and what you're talking about there. Where I think his affirmation was actually, I'm fucking unstoppable. Yeah. I'm fucking unstoppable. He kept saying that I to am. himself over and I over am. again. And that was, I am. And and speaking of I am, there's a good movie by Tom Shadyak, the director of Ace Ventura called I am. That's uh, oh, it's, wow. all, it's all, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit metaphysical and, uh, and woo woo, but it's a good, it's a good film. <laughs> I actually quite enjoyed yeah. it. It's a, it's a documentary, not a, uh, not a film. I mean, not a, not a Hollywood movie. But 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 it's so it, it it is so true that we we really create a, our own realities and there's so many people out there that are just locked into a story 
that it's like, well, these things happen to me, uh, you know, and because they happen to me, I am helpless to change my surroundings. And when I say that, I'm definitely thinking about my ex-wife. <laughs> that's also that's also the philosophy that got Tony Robbins in trouble. And I just had a conversation with somebody else about this. He he made a comment about the Me Too movement, and uh, he was trying to say we need to take cause for what happened in our lives, and just it's how we react to things. And you know we have the power to to create our future. But it, you know it didn't. It's when you're talking about like sexual assault and things like that, it doesn't always come across the <laughs> the right way. So that's not a uh, not a uh, so that that kind of backfires. You have to be a little, you got to be a little cautious to people's uh, backgrounds and how they're how they're going to react to to an extent. But I mean, that is the mess. That is the message, though. That we have to take cause for our own lives, and that's uh, that's how we dictate the future. Yeah, yeah and, and some of us some of us are not dealt great aces. I mean, like I look at my son who's five, and he's you know he's blonde, blue eyed, curly hair. He speaks two languages. He's He's holding every ace imaginable. And if that kid was born, same kid, same intelligence was born in Mogadishu and, you know, he just has dark skin and he's like having to struggle for a peach pit in a garbage can, you know, it's like uh, he doesn't have as many uh, opportunities. And so one of the things that I truly, truly believe is that every human mind is a resource and some of everybody deserves an opportunity and and as long as there's an inequality in the world, it, those opportunities are not met. We're diminishing the human resource. Uh, the work that you're doing is is fantastic for this because the, the giving up oil to inspire people, I can totally get behind that. Uh, but uh, we we got to close up the show now. This was a fantastic conversation. Uh, but uh, before we go, where can we find you? Tell us a little bit about your your both your books. Where you know we'll leave some links, but where yeah. where can people find out more about what you offer? Sure. So uh, you know my website's real simple. It's just my first and last name. It's www.bradblazar. It's spelled B-L-A-Z like zebra A-R dot com. Get information about our coaching programs. We got an online academy. Your people can enroll in. Uh, you get access to other great coaches, courses, and content. People like Damon John, Tony Robbins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's available twenty four seven. Also, my two books are on Amazon. Uh, you can just search by my name, and it's called uh, Put Some Thrive in Your Hive, Unlocking Potential in Any Organization. And, of course, on the Wings of Eagles, Learning to Soar in Life um, podcast is called Beast Nation. If you go to my website, we actually have a podcast page, and you can scroll down that. We have all the prior podcast interviews with some great thought leaders, some great athletes. Uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, really look to change the world. One thing I do want to mention as part of this coronavirus we live in is uh, when I realized that the way we do business had to change, I could not just sit back. And so I've organized some of the biggest minds in sports, business, politics, entrepreneurship. This past Saturday, the 28th of March, we hosted our first Conquer the Crisis Summit. Uh, we went from 11 a.m. Central Standard to 4 in the afternoon. I had nine panelists, Roland Frazier, Coach Michael Burt, Brad Lee, of course, from Dropping Bombs, uh, Matthew Knowles. And we're going to be doing these now every two weeks. The next one is April 11th. Uh, we'll have the website up live, of course, taking registrations again. I've already got commitments from two-time Grammy winner Billy Dorsey. Uh, I've got tentative Bobby Castro. You know, Bobby's a big-time guy down in Florida worth a couple hundred million. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of the coaches that were on the first one are going to be coming on. And I would equate what we're doing. And actually, it was Tim's story that said this. 
Uh, he equates what we're doing to a movement which was Live Aid. If you remember what Live Aid was many years ago, where all the big time celebrity singers came together to raise charity through the promotion of that album, uh, we're going to be doing something very, very similar for the Conquer the Crisis and figuring out what. Are you going to sing? Well, uh, Billy Dorsey's going to sing two times. <laughs> Billy Dorsey's going to sing, and then of course Matt Knowles. You know, you know who his daughter is and who she's connected to. So I guarantee we'll have some entertainment value uh, in the second one for sure. Uh, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Roland Frazier fan. I mean, I, I have not. I, I've seen him speak live. I've been to uh, the last couple of traffic and conversion events. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a smart dude. Yeah, Roland was a panelist. He brought a lot of value. He's going to be a panelist on this next one for sure. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, you know, Roland is you know, built 20 plus companies, anywhere from three to a couple hundred million and exited and consults 150 uh, business owners around the world. Uh, one of the brightest guys I know in business and also, of course, one of the best connected like Larry K. Benet, if you know Larry, but uh, it's big. I mean, we really have big time celebrities coming out of the woodworks that normally would be unapproachable. Uh, and so we're leveraging each one of our relationships to get introduced to other big time people. And I think this is just going to grow organically. It's on YouTube. So if you know you want to go and, and see the summit replays, if you missed them, you can go to YouTube and watch them. But what we're saying to every person that watches it is send it to three people that you think it can help and ask them in watching it to forward it to three more people they know. And through that effort, these will, of course, just grow organically and kind of become viral. And then as we start doing these Conquer the Crisis events, we're going to use it to raise money just like Live they did and give it to people who have lost a loved one. And, and as you do them, you'll attract more and more big name celebrities, I'm sure. Oh, so This thing's going to go viral. I mean, you know, Tim Story, of course, worked alongside Oprah. He knows people like Smokey Robinson, Steve Harvey. I mean, I could see me getting a TV spot here in the next couple months and sitting with Oprah and saying, hey, here's what we're doing, Oprah. The world needs to know about these Conquer the Crisis events because, number one, it brings hope. It brings calmness. And more importantly, people that are entrepreneurs get to see what all of us that are entrepreneurs are doing in our businesses day to day and learn from guys like Roland Frazier, learn from guys like Matthew Knowles, what they're doing today in their businesses to stay relevant. Because let's face it, the way we're going to be doing business going forward has changed forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we are living in a post the world that it's it, like nothing will ever be the same ever, ever again. Somebody, and, and, yeah, somebody big time will make a movie out of this, you know, oh, yeah. it will be a blockbuster and it might be in 10 years and people are like, what the hell is coronavirus? Oprah just started a podcast, Brad. I don't know if you know this, but Oprah started a podcast like a month ago or something. So you got to get on that. Yeah. Right, you gotta get on that one, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, if you do, if you do uh, meet Oprah, please come back on the show. I want to find out what she smells like. <laughs> no one, no one's ever asked, what does Oprah smell like? I, I, I imagine that she smells I've always like wanted to know. <laughs> she's it's like a brand new toilet paper roll. Just like I bet. I bet. Well, toilet paper is like gold right now, man. That's like, that's, that's a compliment right now. Is, you know, I'll tell you what, you, you both of you guys, I don't know over there in the Netherlands, Andros, if I, you know, you guys get speeding tickets, but I saw some funny here in the States, Justin, toss a roll of toilet paper into your car. If you do get pulled over, roll down the window and just smile and hit it. Might get you out of the ticket, right? <laughs> People in the Netherlands are very, very decent. So it's the new uh, currency. That's the new yeah. currency. Well, well before we... <laughs> Before we go, uh, I got to find out. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, but uh, tell us, tell well. us, what are you most geeky about? And also, I just got to say, Brad Blazer, that sounds like a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> Every superhero, yeah. alien, Clark Kent, uh, Peter, Peter Parker. Parker. 
Brad yeah. Blazer. So first, the first question is, if you were, uh, if, th- if this is your alias, <laughs> what, what would be your superpower? My, oh, my, my, my superpower, um, it would have to probably be x-ray vision. I mean, let's face it, we all want to look through the clothes of sexy little ladies, right? It'd be x-ray so yeah definitely the x-ray what's your superhero name i mean you have the whole farm uh beastology thing going so what's your superhero name i mean what animal uh, are we channeling here well i don't know if it's an animal my, my my super beast name um you know i mean i love the rhino you know the charging rhino uh you know if you see our logo it's kind of the ninja you know with the mask pulled over his face on our logo build your beast uh you know i never really thought of myself quote as a superhero and you know uh, it's really funny. My daughter, you know, she's eight now, but, you know, when she was four or five, of course, we were reading, you know, Captain Underpants. Yeah, and there was a while there just like, uh, you know, Adam Sandler in the movie where he was, uh, you know, uh, 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 Scuba Skeeve. You know, she thought and all of her friends thought that her daddy was, uh, you know, Captain Underpants. And I, <laughs> you know, and so I've got a Captain Underpants poster here in my office that I was kind of geeky about as we were reading through the yeah. Captain Underpants. But do you have a Captain Underpants outfit? Uh, I, I did. For, I did for Halloween a couple of years ago because you know, I had to up with the name. But um, you, you, know, know, is, uh, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. You know, love Star Wars. Well, hang on one second. Oh, hang on one second. We got we got to talk about this. But I, I like this connection to like build a bear and build a beast. Though I just had to mention <laughs> that because it's like it's that's also uncanny. I like that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I, first of all, since you brought up Star Wars, uh, I I'm I, I have no words for the disappointment. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it's it's become now too Hollywood. The first one, maybe the second one, even up to Return of the Jedi. But they, they I've lost touch now with the new Star Wars. I don't see them nearly as impactful or as engaging as the first two or three. You know, a good movie that I used to love when I was a kid, talking about Star Trek. I don't know if you remember the robot. But I remember Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. yeah. The new Lost in Space on Netflix is great. Well, here's here's your Star Trek uh, connection for the day. Uh, my uh, My dad wrote one of the original episodes of Star Trek. Uh, yeah, we actually wrote two. And he was the guy who coined the phrase live long and prosper. He wrote that script. And uh, Gene Roddenberry and some of the cast of Star Trek were friends of the family. And I grew up around all of that. Uh, but he wrote uh, he wrote a mock time where uh, Kirk and Spock fight to the death over the Vulcan princess and uh, shore leave where they go to the planet where whatever they think of comes true. Made famous uh, so, in the cable guy with Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> that was a good movie too. I remember that one. Yeah. No, his dad, his dad, his dad was Theodore Sturgeon, science fiction writer. So if you're familiar with that, um, that he, okay. yeah, he was, he was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, uh, uh, but uh, I, I definitely have the science fiction. I, I love that type of stuff. So tell me what, uh, what are you most geeky about right at this moment? Like what, besides, yeah, I'm, I'm a geeky guy when it comes to basically three things, my watches, my cufflinks, and my gadgets. Uh, I'm a gadget guy. One of my favorite websites is Touch Modern. You know, they got some cool stuff there you can buy, uh, you know, just cool little things. I mean, they had a crossbow that shot toothpicks on there a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, man, I got to get that, you know, crossbow that shoots toothpicks. But this thing was so cool i mean it had you know the little thing that you pull back and it locked and you put a little toothpick in there oh i love that just little geeky gadgets like that you know and i've got all did you get a did you get elon musk not a flamethrower you get one of those no i didn't get that was that on there as well but uh you know (laughs) that was was, uh he did he did a whole promotion where he actually like he made a flamethrower and he sold it through the boring company oh wow and he called it he he called it not a flamethrower and he raised a whole bunch of money but it was pretty badass looking i i wish uh 
Yeah, so I'm just I'm just a geeky gadget guy. I like cool little things that Taster Modern has. You know, little geeky gadgets. I love my cup. What's your favorite gadget? What's your favorite gadget right now? Yeah. God, um, my favorite gadget right now actually um, is actually something that uh, we use. I'm a big wine drinker, and it's uh, called the Venturi. It's basically got a big needle that uses uh, compressed air, so that you don't have so you don't have to uncork the bottle. And basically, the thought is, if you've got an expensive bottle of wine, is you can pour it by the glass without removing the cork. And it's uh, pretty cool because, you know, I have some big time expensive bottles of wines and I don't want to uncork it and then not finish it. So what it has is a compressed air cartridge with a needle that when you turn it over, you're pumping air into the bottle to force the wine out. It's a pretty cool little geeky gadget. So I'm pretty uh, geeky about that. And I recommend it to anybody that loves wine. Uh, that's certainly one. And then uh, what's my other geeky gadget that I have right now? Oh, I guess my uh, my night vision goggles, which are pretty. Cool. Oh, nice, nice. We live on a river where at night all the big wildlife come out. Every now and then we'll see you know, alligators come by. My neighbor saw a couple of fox the other night. They've got some outdoor infrared cameras as well. So, are you an iPhone or an Android guy? I'm an Android guy. Okay, yeah. I was curious. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm an Android guy, and it might be because uh, I guess the older version of the Apple phones you couldn't run multiple apps simultaneously. Uh, and I've, you know, now of course I use a MacBook. So, I mean, I'm All right, so you're hybrid like me. I, I run a PC, but I have an iPhone. I have the opposite, <laughs> but, I'm, yeah, but I, I'm an Android guy. Yeah. I've got an old uh, LG, which is a decent phone and just, you know, you get, you get comfortable with what you get comfortable with, but I'll tell you, you know, the, the lenses on the new iPhones are as good as any SLR camera. I was amazed. I was at a big mastermind uh, event and it was uh, dusk and it was pretty dark out and this guy took a picture with the new iphone and i was like yeah. holy crap that's as crystal clear as my slr it's like it's like the best I mean, cameras from like 10 years ago are now in your iphone <laughs> yeah exactly but the funny thing is i'll tell you you being a geeky guy i'll tell you the most brilliant idea i had and why nobody's done this yet you want to talk about how the three of us can make a billion dollars yes sex robots so it's it, Every Uber driver, as you know, right, they got their phone right up there. They're going GPS, right? Everybody's got their phone up there right on the vent. They're all doing. Why has nobody put a damn radar detector inside your cell phone so that when you're up there, right, and you're sitting there and it's right there in front of you, you get your radar detector. You no longer have to have your passport or your escort. Now your phone goes beep, beep, beep every time a cop is in front of you, your radar. Yeah, I'm like, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer, the iPhone. Right? Maybe, maybe the manufacturers are afraid of like the relationship with the police and the and the authorities. But the but there should be someone that can make an adapter. The adapter should come to your phone for sure. They don't give a shit about kind of stuff like that over in China where most of the stuff. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so, you know. so true. So true. Justin, what are you geeky about right now? Uh, you know, like speaking of like how the movie industry is changing, my son and I, who's my son's now home with me, we watched, uh, we paid the 20 bucks and I and I, I watched, uh, what's it called? Onward, the Disney Pixar movie Onward with him. It was yeah. quite good. It was quite good. But that was just funny because that's supposed to be in theaters right now and it's available there's a couple different versions here. Some of the movies are available to rent for 20 bucks. I'm not going to rent a movie for 20 bucks, but if it's available to purchase for 20 bucks, I could justify that decision. So I, I that was the one we went with was Onward. We watched it yesterday. <laughs> it's good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, are you guys, are you guys big, uh, are you guys big uh, Ozark fans at all? I, I, I have only made it through half of the first season. I've loved it. And then I just got, I get distracted and I need to get back to it. Uh, but I, I just heard my friend tell me about season three and he's like, it's incredible. So I got to, I got to catch up, but better call Ozark. Saul. Better Call Saul, I love. 
Yeah. I uh, I just uh, rewatched the first season of Westworld. I've never seen uh, season two or three because I I hate waiting. Just stop. Just stop. What, really? Does it get worse? Well, well, I, I didn't. Season two was definitely a step back. I have not watched season three yet. Well, uh, I showed it to me and uh, my wife Iris watched uh, watched it, and I I forgot. It's a great show. It's really oh good. It's so good. So good. So hopefully, season two and season three aren't a disappointment. Uh, but uh, I was kind of geeky about watching that. I just watched that last night. Uh, but uh, yeah, man. Uh, again, Brad Blazer, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. And uh, so uh, grateful that you came on the show. And uh, uh, we'll, uh, uh, again, please come back, uh, especially if you speak to Oprah. We'd love to have you back. Yeah. Tell us what you're <laughs> just At least just text us and tell us what she smells like. Yeah. All right. Exactly. All right. Well, I'll make sure I come back, whether it's her, whether it's Beyonce. You know, I know her father. So, uh, you, know, right, yeah. you know, so uh, all right. Uh, Brad Blazer, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> Love it, guys. Brad Blazer, everybody. So, uh, yeah, man, hell of a show. And, uh, and, uh, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, another fine episode of the Marketing Geeks podcast. Uh, we are, uh, yeah, our website is uh, mostly up right now. We're going to be refining it, doing some other cool stuff. And, uh, you know, connect with us on LinkedIn. Follow us on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to get a hold of us. And, uh, yeah, with that, uh, Marketing Geeks out. Yeah. So stay classy. (laughs) Marketing Geeks, come on, bring your friends. We'll learn marketing from distant lands. Andrew Sturgeon and Justin Womack, the fun will never end. It's Marketing Geeks. Marketing Geeks.